Summit Drive, we were working through the letters of John at the moment, and, um, and as we've seen, it's, it's probably better to call it a sermon. It's, uh, it's, not, it's not the same kind of thing as a typical letter. It's um, something that has been around that area of Ephesus. We're looking at, you might say, the sermon of 1 John, and we're unpacking it together. You know, my brothers and I, we would, we would wrestle. I had two brothers, and so basically most of what we did most of the time was trying to pin someone else down. And what would happen um, is if you pinned the other down, there was this phrase that you would say, and you, you know how it goes, right? Say, uncle. Right, that means I win, you lose. That's the words of surrender. Uncle, or if you were, you know, somehow your neck was involved and you couldn't speak, then you'd just tap the ground, and that meant, stop it, I'm about to die. Um, <laughs> surrender is a word that for many of us, has that initial connotation of losing. I lost to my brother if I surrendered. I gave up. It means I'm beat. I'm beat. And, and, and so I think that's actually what bothers us about the word sometimes. Um, it means giving up control to someone else. And we live in a, highly, in, in a world that highly values autonomy, holding the world and our experience of it with a white knuckle sort of grasp on the controls. I want to be the master of my own destiny. And so in our world, um, just the word surrender sounds like weakness. Or, you know, surrender can be used in sort of like a Harlequin romance sort of sense. Um, I wrote this myself. So I surrendered to his strong embrace as he stared into my eyes like a cat intent on its tuna dinner. Um, And so, no, I have no intention of going into writing romance novels. Uh, I just don't, and I shouldn't, as you can clearly see. Surrender means losing control to an outside force. And so, you know, in, in, in kind of like the setting of romance, we might even think of that in a sort of positive sense in some ways as well. So surrender means to give up to or to give into or to give over to something or someone else. But far too often in our world, people surrender to the wrong things. Surrender to an abusive situation, not seeking help or getting counseling or setting appropriate boundaries, but just giving in or giving over to the way things are, even if they're totally detrimental and abusive. Or people surrender to addictions. Man, they, they, give, up, they give up trying to do battle with the pain of their past and they just buy another bottle. Or instead of doing the hard work of seeking help in a supportive community, a community of grace, And making radical changes to a pattern of behavior, they fold like a lawn chair under their addiction to pornography. So our response at this point might be something like this. Well, uh, answer is simple. I'm just not going to surrender to anything or anyone. And that sounds like, that sounds like the best option, you know, if we start processing that. Except here's the problem. Everybody is surrendering to something or someone. Uh, in, in, our, in our series on worship that we went through in January, the first message was about how everyone worships all the time. There's no such thing as not worshiping. There's no such thing as not surrendering to something or someone. Even if I say to myself, man, I'm not going to surrender to anything. I'm my own man, my own boss, the master of my life. The reality is I'm surrendering to my own ego, which in itself becomes a kind of prison. A prison where connection and community, they become impossible. Why? Because I'm not able to actually love others. 
love and the reality of it. We saw in, in our uh, chapter from last week in chapter three, boy, love means self-giving for the benefit of others. And that can only happen when I'm sort of open to the other, seeking the benefit of someone else. Uh, my, my wife, Catherine, and I, we've been watching this documentary on like car racing. It's not really on car racing though, it's about people and that's why she watches it with me. Um, and it's, it's fascinating because the documentary filmmakers, they go and they, they interview each of these sort of like street racer kind of folks and, and they take you into their homes or whatever and they, they, they kind of dig into their stories a bit. And there's this one episode of this guy, um, he's this beautiful, huge home somewhere in Texas and he kind of takes us on this tour inside and for lack of better terms, his house is full of like man toys. Like he's got an arcade, and I don't just mean like a video game, like a whole arcade for himself. And then he, he brings us over and he says, well, yeah, you know, like he's got this like crazy speaker system in his house. It's just unreal. Like why are there so many speakers in here? And he, he was talking about how he was a DJ. Part of, you know, like his, part of his life has been to be a DJ. And then he says, well, I was a DJ at a strip club. And we were supposed to be impressed as the audience. And I thought, ooh. Anyways. And then he, and he began to boast about never being married or never having any kids. Now, just pause. From a Christian perspective, not being married is no problems at all. It's the same status as being married. Not having kids, no problem at all. But this guy made it his boast. He said, I'm not being tied down to any women or any children. And, and more, he showed up on race day and he got out of his vehicle that he was going to race. And he was wearing a t-shirt and it had a picture, like full-size picture of his own face on his shirt. <laughs> so he's got his face and he's got his face and it was like, this is really awkward looking. And I felt, I, it was so silly. But his face was on his chest. Anyways, I felt really sad for him at this point. As this played out on the screen, this man was boasting of never surrendering to anything or anyone Yet he was completely surrendered to his own ego and he didn't even know it. And lest you think I'm speaking from this high and holy place down at this guy down here and his, the reality is, and what was so sad is that I've seen those same things crop up in myself. Those same tendencies can be there within me to make life about me. To, I'm not gonna get a shirt with my face on the front, although maybe I should now. That'd be just really funny to wear sometimes just to like shame myself out of that self-centeredness kind of way of thinking. Anyways, um, <clears throat> that prison that he's trapped in, I'm tempted to just go into it myself. We're all surrendered to something or someone all the time. The question is, can we be free? Is there such a thing as surrender that actually leads not to the closing in of life, but to the opening up of life? Is that possible? Uh, Christian psychologist and thinker, David Benner, he puts it like this, far from being a sign of weakness, only surrender to something or someone bigger than ourselves is sufficiently strong to free us from the prison of our own egocentricity. Only surrender is powerful enough to overcome our isolation and alienation. And then he says it like this, he goes on, only God, not that other person in the Harlequin romance or Dave Field's romance series, or whatever you want to call it, not that other person. Only God deserves absolute surrender because only God can offer absolutely dependable love. You want to be free. Free to be who you're meant to be. 
free from insecurity and fear, free from trying to grasp control of life and always being anxious about what's around the next corner, consistently insecure or uncertain about who you really are, then place your rest, your trust, your hope in the deep love that comes from God. Only in surrendering to God are we moved to a place where instead of unresolved conflict and pettiness and maybe even a a sort of an underpinning of anger that just boils under the surface all the time, we try to kind of make it look good on the outside, but it's there. We can only move from this place to that place, become a community of reconciling love when we let the love of God first transform us. So in John's sermon so far, he's been showing us more of who God is. In the first half, we see that God is light, he is truth, he is pure, he is good. And then we see twice in our passage today, we're gonna see that God is love. That this is an element of God's essence. And as we'll see, experiencing God's love for us, really receiving it, that will will bring us into a, a whole new kind of reality and existence a wholly different set of behaviors, and a totally transformed relationship with other people as well. So let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we open ourselves to you. We pray that as we listen to the words of of this Spirit-inspired text, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts, that we would hear your voice in the way that we need to this morning, and that we would be led to love and worship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a result, that you would be transforming us for your glory and our good. Amen. Uh, So open with me in your Bibles to 1 John 4. We're going to start at verse 7, or on your Bible app, whatever you're using to read. And maybe just for fun, as we go, just underline all the word, every time you see the word love, just, just for fun, if you want, if you're the kind of person who makes a mess of your Bible like I do, underline love, and maybe circle everything that has to do with God. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, any of those words, just circle those as well, and that might just kind of paint this interesting picture on the page for you. Um, let's read together, starting at verse 7. Dear friends, is how the NIV translates it. Uh, the word is agape toy in Greek, which means love. It's, it's a cognate of the word love. Loved ones, beloved, I like that better. Let's go with that. Loved ones, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. That is the, verse 7 and 8 is the tightest kind of packed area where it speaks about love in the Bible. There's more occurrences of it in just the fewest amount of words right there. This is kind of telling us something about the center of this passage. And we have to see, what John is telling us is that love is from God. He is the fountain. He is the foundation. He is the source. Every time we see love or experience it in our world, our eyes, if we know what this text said, should always go back to God and give glory to him. Glory to you, God. Look at this love. This love that I see is from you. You're the source of it. But to say that God is love, to say that God's own nature is love, um, this often, this phrase is often misunderstood, misquoted, misused. See, to say, I'm gonna try to sort some of those out here. To say God is love, you can't just flop, like swap the words. It, it doesn't mean the same thing. Syntax matters, word order matters. Love is God, that is not true. That's not a true statement. 
Love as a concept, as a feeling, as an action toward others is wonderful, comes from God, but it is not the person of God. So what does it say to, to mean to say God is love? Well, first, we need to see that to say God is love means that God is relational. Uh, throughout the Bible, we find out that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has always existed as the one God. Together, a relationship, a community, and love has always been shared. For all of eternity, God is love. We, there was never a time where God was not love, which means there was never a time where there wasn't Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in existence together. And here's the cool part. In the Bible, first page of the Bible, you and I are said to be made in the image of God. Now, that means quite a lot of things, but at least one portion of what that means is that you and I were created as relational beings. To be made in God's image means we are made for relationship. If you're wondering why you exist on this planet, it is for connection. First of all, with God, with others, with your own self and with the rest of creation. That is why you exist. And that's why the prison of egocentricity is such a problem because it takes you out of your humanity. That's not who you were meant to be. You were meant to be a lover. That's who you are at your core because God is a lover at his core. Second, and this gets to the next point, to say God is love means that everything God does is loving. There is nothing about God, nothing about his character that is out of line with being loving. Now, as a dad, I am seeking the best for my two boys. Uh, you know, my best day, I get it wrong still, but at heart, my intent for my boys is the very best for them. I want the best for them. I mean, they might not think so when they're being disciplined. <laughs> uh, they might not agree with all the choices I make, but all of them are for love for those boys. And in a perfect way, that's how God is with you. God is also always seeking your best interest, like all the time. There's never a moment where God doesn't have your best interest at heart. And just like a child and parent relationship, that doesn't mean that we, we won't face pain or disappointment or discipline. See, when God disciplines us, and he will, it's because God is a good father. He knows what he's doing, and he knows what we need, what actually needs to change inside of us. And it means that even the pain that we face is not outside of God's love and goodness either. Paul says in Romans 8, 28, a lot of you probably have this memorized, that for those who love God, who are called according to his good purposes, everything in your life, God is ultimately working for your good through that. Now, we have questions does that mean God caused that pain in my life? He made this happen? Is it his doing? I would say no. But he's created a world where we can and do experience real pain. He saw it fit that the world he made where it was possible for us to not love him as first and best and the world to collapse in on itself because of that. Because we as humans had invited evil into the world there is also now gonna be sin and death as a result. And so we live in a world that's broken by sin and it causes us pain of all kinds, but God is loving and good through it. 
For those who love God, he will be at work even in your most painful situations. He will be shaping us, forming our character, ultimately drawing us closer to himself. Now, why did this event happen? Why did God allow it to happen? I have no idea. I could never tell you the answer to that. But I do know that he is good. And there was nothing about whatever painful event you faced where God was not loving you through it and loving you in it. Here's the other part that's easy to misunderstand. And actually, just reading the next section of the text will clarify it. But when John says this, everyone who loves God has been born of God and knows God, that doesn't mean that, every, that how loving we are toward others is the means of our salvation. As though being loving is somehow sufficient grounds for God to accept us as his own. Now, it's true. There are many people in this world who don't know God through Christ and yet they act, maybe even really quite consistently, as very loving people. That's a beautiful thing. I need to celebrate that. Because God is the source of all real love, whether people recognize it or not. And that's often the problem, is that all the love that comes from God that people show, God is not the one being glorified because of it. People are, are taking the glory for themselves, and that's the issue. Theologians often call this ability for people to love and be kind and do great things in the world common grace. It means this, that God is gracious, he's good, he endows all of humanity with the ability to love other people, to, to make beautiful things in the world, to use their intellect for the sake of human flourishing, that they could be empathetic and compassionate, and that is a wonderful thing. But make no mistake, all of these are gifted to them by God. Ultimately, they were intended to bring God glory, but we often take the glory for ourselves as humanity. And just because someone doesn't recognize Jesus as Lord, it doesn't mean that they're not able to de demonstrate real, genuine acts of love and compassion. They really are. Common grace is evident all around us all the time, but it is from God. And as we'll see in these next verses, loving others is not sufficient to save us. And that's the main issue we got to see here. See, we cannot love deeply enough. Our motivations can never be pure enough to deal with the ugliness and injustice and self-centeredness that is present in all of us, not just myself. And that actually needs to be dealt with. And we have to see that only God through Christ can do this. In this picture, as I'm going to read the next verses, 9 to 11, it pictures for us an incredibly beautiful, potent way, the love of God. Here's what he says. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God. We didn't. We couldn't. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, and so doesn't mean so much, it means in this manner. Since God loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another, and the implication is in this way too. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. What is love? It's self-sacrifice. What's the motivation? The sake of others, the good of others. God's love is now loaded up with a very specific content, 
self-giving for the sake of others, and that is to become our own pattern of life. Our mode of relating to each other as brother and sister in Christ. Now, as John says at the beginning of his message, back in chapter one, we were made to live in the light. Rather than filling the world with more hate and violence, ugliness and injustice, we were made to reflect and resemble God's own character out into the world, his goodness, his love. But we didn't as humanity, and we often don't. We really do need healing from our darkness, our sin and self-centeredness. This is where we find out really the depths of what love is, what real love means. In 1 John 4.10, again, I want to read this. This is love, not that we love God. It doesn't start with us. It doesn't. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. Now, atoning sacrifice, is it really necessary that Jesus died for us? Have you ever wrestled with that? I know a lot of people said, I, like, I, I love Jesus, this is great, I just don't get why brutal death, why that? And I'm not going to answer this question in full for you this morning, I'm going to give you one answer, and, and maybe it's helpful, maybe it's one you haven't heard before too, but let me just give you one, one concept, think of it. Death is the ultimate expression of, of what evil does. It removes, it destroys the good we were created for because it destroys relationship. And that's why it hurts so much. Like, why does grief feel like fear? Why does it feel like we are, ourselves have experienced a sort of death inside? It's because we have. The death of a relationship that we once had hurts like hell, and I mean hell in the technical kind of biblical sense of it of separation. It's this sense of what was supposed to be is now broken apart and that, that ability to relate is no longer possible anymore in that same way and so it hurts like, it hurts like hell, like that sense of separation. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see that when, when humanity moved away from making God the center of their existence, the result was what? It was death. It was spiritual but eventually it was physical as well. And so we as humanity invited hell, meaning separation, brokenness, and, and the, the divide between God and ourselves and others, we invited that into the world. And this is why the good news of Jesus is so, so good. In Jesus' death, death itself dies. That's why the resurrection is so key to Christianity. It's the center of our faith. Why? Because Jesus doesn't stay dead, and he is able to deal death, the death blow that kills death itself by absorbing the power of death in his own death. The, the resurrection on the other side of that death, this is God's ultimate yes to life. This is his promise that death does not have the last word, that it is no longer ultimate. And that's why Paul can say that because of the resurrection of Jesus, though death hurts and we will grieve, its sting is gone. No long death, where is your sting? Where is it gone? Because our grief is not final. For those who are in Christ, our grief will give way to joy and the joy of restored relationship. So we have to see that for John, trusting in what God did through his son Jesus in his death is absolutely essential. 
Just look what Jesus has done for you. This is what God has done for you. Can you imagine? God gives you his only son. Jesus lets his life break apart so yours can be healed. He dies in your place to absorb the sin and wrath of God in his own body on the cross. And then we, we say to him, no, I think I'm good. Good without that. In fact, I, I do think I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm a good person. God will accept me on that basis alone, right? I don't need, I don't need that. Don't want it. That non-trust in him is the ultimate affront to God. But when we put our trust there, when we receive what Jesus the King has done for us, something dramatic happens. When we surrender to God's love, we're moved by his love that's now alive in us, and we begin to want to reflect that same kind of love out to others. The sermon that John's been preaching throughout to our hearts, John makes it clear that while our behavior doesn't save us, only Jesus can do that. The life we live, it, it, it confirms it grows to resemble the kind of love God has for us in our love for others. You know, I've had a front row seat to watch incredible things. For all the challenges that being a pastor is, there's one thing I get that many, many people don't get to see. And that's all these private conversations I have where I see God working in people's lives in dramatic, like, mind-blowing ways. A um, couple that don't live here, but recently had been in contact with a couple, man and a wife, in the wake of incredible heartbreak in their relationship with each other. Their relationship was dead. It was, it was deader than dead. They were beginning to grieve it. And yet, both of them, in the same wake, week, came to a, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They put their trust in him. And now, the love of Christ is gripping their hearts, and they've been repenting of the things that they've done wrong, and they're forgiving each other, and there is healing and hope, and it's springing up. And instead of this painful split that their kids were looking, well, not looking forward to, quite the opposite, instead of that, their parents were modeling a Christ-fueled, humble pattern of love for each other. It is incredible to watch that kind of thing. It's only the work of God in someone's heart. So yes, God's love is for us, directed to us. It's meant to make us new. God's love is for us, and it's wonderfully, mysteriously, God's love is in us. That's the second point here. Let's read from verse 13. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. Speaking about the Holy Spirit of God. Last week we saw that uh, John, when he speaks of the spirit, this is the means of how God lives in us. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives and begins to change us. But he talked about a test. He said, how do you know it's really the Spirit of God that you're kind of encountering here? And in, in 4, 1 to 6, he talks about the reality of Jesus. The Spirit of God will lead us to confess that Jesus Christ is God's true king and rescuer, that he came in the body. It wasn't just kind of a ghost or like sort of a... Uh, so he didn't just appear to be human. He really was. He died for you and rose again. He says, that's the test of legitimate spirituality. If spirituality leads you to claim that Jesus Christ lived in the flesh, died and rose again for me, that's legitimate spirituality. Everything else is not God's Holy Spirit. That's a different thing. And that's what John says next. And we have seen and testify 
that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges, there's the piece there, acknowledges what? That Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. See, living with confidence comes from trusting it, relying on a very specific thing, that Jesus has died for you, rose again, and offers you life in his name. That's what it means to rely on God's love. And it calls us to ask ourselves, like, where am I putting my trust? Or to phrase it differently, what am I loving as first and best? What am I relying on to give me a sense of uh, meaning in life? Where is my hope coming from for the future? Where's my security? Is it my money? Is it in a relationship I have with another person? Is that where it rests? Or is it in Jesus? God's son who loved me to the cross and back. Here is the source of real life. He is the source of true life. As we read in the text, God is love. Whoever lives in God, whoever lives in love, pardon me, lives in God and God in them. You in God, in the sphere of the love that has been going on for all of eternity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you get to be a part of that. And that same God says, I'm going to empower you and come into your life and change you and reshape how you live today as well. That's what God has for you today. If you don't know it yet, you can live with God's confidence, and that's what ultimately changes us. Look at verses 17 and 18. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we'll have confidence in the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Wow, that might, like Jesus, in what, in what sense are we like Jesus? I mean, he's the unique son of God. He has a specific vocation that ours isn't exactly like. I, th I think, given the context, it's like this. Jesus just received the love from his father at his baptism. This is my son whom I love. And he receives it. And he lives in confident trust all of his days. He loves deeply. Why? Because he's got nothing to fear. He lives with that confidence, the love of his Father for him. We are like God in the world, or we're like Jesus in the world in the same way as that. Let's keep reading. And that's why it says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Some of my, like, we might ask, a day of judgment, I thought it said that God is love. Why would it, why would it talk about judgment? If God is love, I think, well, how is it possible that he would judge the world? Think of this, though. Would God be good? Would we be able to say that God is, is good if he just let continu evil continue indefinitely? If there was this heinous tragedy, uh, we, we witnessed these like shootings and things. If God was apathetic to that, if he didn't care, would we say that he's good? Would he be the object of our worship if he didn't care about evil in the world? So God will one day end all evil. Anything that distorts or destroys God's good creation, he will, in his perfect love and justice, remove it because he is love. Now here's the good news for us. Because if we're honest, he should wipe us out too, right? That evil that's in the world is actually in here too. And yet when I put my trust in Jesus, 
I'm, I'm forgiven and made new in the sense that God can end all evil without having to end me or you when we trust in him. So we actually can have confidence that on the day of judgment, we say Jesus has paid it all. We read in chapter 2 that Jesus is the advocate before the Father because he died for us, for our sins, for the sins of the whole world we read there. And now think of it. Where's the first time we hear about fear in the Bible? Thinking? Are you trying to figure out where it was? Genesis chapter 3. It's the first time we hear anything about fear. We learn that after Adam and Eve had reached out and taken from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is another way of saying they have tried to grasp life with themselves at the center. They said, God, we don't want you or your ways. We want life on our terms. We want to define good and evil. And when they did it, it says that their eyes were open and whoa, they saw the reality of what they've just done and now they're afraid. That's the first time you see any fear in the Bible. 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, he puts it like this. The disease of fear came into humanity's heart with sin. Adam was never afraid of his God till he had broken his commands. So perfect love, God's love displayed in Jesus and what he's done for you, perfect love really does drive out fear. We don't have to fear judgment anymore. And this has a beautiful practical outworking for us. It translates into to John's big practical point in our section, actually the whole letter, that we are to love each other from the outflow of receiving that love from God to us. Basically, loved people love, forgiven people forgive, reconciled people seek reconciliation in all of their relationships. People who experience God's peace seek peace in the world. When we rest in God and we dwell in his love, we experience a profound sense of security. See, we don't have to work harder or be better than others to know that we're, we're worth something. One of the things that breaks my heart, and we saw it in that illustration from the TV, um, this character I was talking about, there's this narrative that shows up in our culture, and we hear it in interviews and all kinds of places. It goes like this. I just need to prove to the world that, and fill in the blank. The that can take a lot of shapes and forms, but it basically comes down to, I got, I've just gotta prove to the world that I'm a somebody that I am worthy of respect, that I, that I am worthy of love, that I, that, I, that I am worthy of your attention. There's this striving to prove ourselves that's unrelenting, it's exhausting, it's even dehumanizing, and we're so used to hearing it <laughs> that we have to somehow prove that we're a lovable person, that we're a something, that even Christian people can begin to get sucked into that way of thinking and living if we don't come back to the reality of how deeply we're loved in Christ. And that's why we rehearse the story of the gospel week in and week out in our gathered worship like this, because we need to be reminded that I don't have to prove anything. I've got nothing to prove. I've got nothing to lose. Look at how God loves me. And my security rests there. And so that means that fear is removed in multiple ways for us. We read in verse 18, there's no fear in love. See, not only do we not fear final judgment, boy, we don't have to fear failure. We don't even have to fear each other. We're now freely, truly free to love each other just for the sake of loving you, just for your own sake, not for what I can get from you, not for the sort of way it might prop up my own ego. No, I can actually love people just for their sake. If I get nothing from it, totally disinterested love. 
See, we can become truly like Jesus in the world in that sense as well as God's love defines and shapes us. Now, of course, there's a, such a thing as a healthy kind of fear, and that's, and that's in, the, in the Bible, it's described as the fear of God. This is a deep reverence for God. It's not a cowering away or walking on eggshells because I don't know what God is going to do if I just misstep one. It's not like that at all. For us, that's often where our minds go when you think fear of God. This is not that. This fear is not cowering away, but bowing down in adoration and awe. See, we both have utter confidence to come before the very throne of God. Why? Because Jesus paid it all, because of what he has done. On our own, we should be shaking in our boots and saying, there's no way I could come before a holy God. But because of Jesus, he has made a way. We get to come before a God who is unfathomably powerful. He's holy and good and yet he invites us to come to him. Paul says in Romans 8 that we can call him Abba. It's like, Daddy. This is this tender language of how we can approach God our Father. And so there's this, we hold these two realities together. They come together for a Christian person. Utter respect and deep awe for God and total confidence to run to the seat of mercy and find it when we need it, as we read in Hebrews. This deep sense of confidence in what Christ has done for us through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our, in our hearts leads us to reverence and awe for God and fearless love for others. And this is our last and third point. God's love is, is for us, it's in us, and it's through us. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is... out of touch with reality. John is saying, I don't know how you think you can say that you love God and your attitudes and your behavior and your words about other Christian people. It's hateful. That's just, that's a lie. You can't do those two things. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they can see cannot love God whom they have not seen. So he's given us this command. Anyone who loves God, if you want those words to be on your lips, must also love their brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't claim to love God and not love others. Why? Because the love of God is obviously not operative in a heart that's unrepentantly hardened and hating. As John says, we love because he first loved us. And it's as we surrender, as we open our hands, let God's ways be ours, that's when we can obey God. It's not out of fear or drudgery, but out of joy and delight. See, if we think of God as a demanding taskmaster, that like God's most interested in this, fall in line carry out my marching orders, then our obedience to him will be fueled by fear. Like, what if I don't? And in that case, we would see our own obedience as that which saves us. Do you see that? See how that would be? But when we come and we see what God has done in loving us, we behold the cross of Jesus. 
And we find out that it's while we were still sinners, Paul says, that Christ died for us. We didn't clean ourselves up first. No, it was while we were still sinners. Or as John says here, not that we loved God, we couldn't, we didn't, (laughs) but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, when we come to let God's love define us, we will want to obey him. Obedience won't be in a sense uh, of trying to gain God's approval, but it will be our hearty yes to God's already hearty yes through Christ to us. David Benner, uh, he puts it like this, surrender is foundational to the Christian spirituality and is the soil out of which obedience should grow. Christ does not simply want our compliance. He wants our heart. He wants our love, and he offers us his. He invites us to surrender to his love. Love is transformational only when it's received in. Ah, there's a hateful word for some of us. Vulnerability. Vulnerability? Boy, that means not being in control, right? That means not managing my persona anymore. That means not protecting myself. Yes, exactly. Benner then gives this example. Suppose that I, with God's help, were able to love my son unconditionally. But if he is desperately trying to please me, the unconditional nature of my love will not be noticed. And there will be no deep experience of knowing himself to be deeply and unconditionally loved. Receiving love while he's trying to earn it will only reinforce his efforts to be lovable. Far from being transformational, this will only increase his efforts to earn love. And any love he receives will only be experienced as the fruit of these efforts. Do you see what his point is there? If I love my son unconditionally, but he's trying to earn Love through his own efforts, whatever he experiences, he'll think it's about him. He'll think he's earned it. It's the result of his good behavior, not just the freely offered love. It'll reinforce that sense that I'm loved because I was a good boy, because I obeyed, because I behaved. And that'll just keep the lie going that we're acceptable because of our good, for our own goodness. We've already been told over and over again in 1 John that this is not true. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know it's the case. Benner goes on. He says this, genuine transformation, and that is God's goal in your life, to make you look like his son Jesus. That is his goal for you. Genuine transformation requires vulnerability. It's not the fact of being loved unconditionally that's life-changing. It's the risky experience of allowing myself to be loved unconditionally. It's that risky experience of opening myself up to God and saying, okay, God, I'm not going to try to manage Life on my own terms anymore. I'm going to actually let that love of yours melt my heart until I'm a different person. So just ask yourself, am I ready to really let God love me? To be open to all that God wants me to experience of his presence and love to melt my heart, to transform me so I can truly be like Jesus in this world. I mean, that can be scary. And here's why. Because I'm no longer I'm no longer the master of what I become. I'm essentially giving God, here you go, you're in charge of what I am becoming. I'm just going to rest in your love until you make it happen. You see why that's scary? You see why why maybe I don't want that? It's because I'm opening myself up to actually being changed. I'm giving God the key. Saying, "You you do what you do. And just let me receive it. 
Maybe you need to ask this question too as a follow-up. God, how are you leading me to let this love become the source and fountain of love in me and through me to others? Like maybe there's this opportunity that keeps coming, God keeps moving it in front of you and you keep going, ah, no, someone else. Pushes it back again. Well, I, I don't have the time right now. And it comes back again. What is that opportunity for you? What is the thing that maybe God is saying, Dave, I want you to love me practically, to love your neighbor in this way? And maybe it's something that's risky, that's new, that's going to cause you to kind of be like, oh, I don't really know how to do that. Well, maybe that's exactly what God wants for you so that you can become a new sort of person. Because Benner is right. There is no genuine life without love. Self-interest suffocates life. Life implodes when self-interest is at the core. This is why the kingdom of self is based on death. Ultimately, taking care of number one takes care of no one, he says. For the only way to truly care for myself is to give myself in love to others. There I will find my truest and deepest fulfillment. I believe that. I believe that's true. I I believe, as I quoted last week from C.S. Lewis, that self-giving is ultimate reality. When I live with myself at the center, something happens where my life just gets smaller. Uh, Augustine called it sin. He said it is, is homo incurvatus in se, meaning a man or a person turned in on himself. It's navel-gazing. Our life gets small when you look to you, and somehow life begins to grow and become exciting And what it's meant to be when we say, God, empower me to love like you do in the world. Um, there's such a contrast between the guy with the, his face picture on his shirt and, um, and my friend Luis Salinas, uh, who uh, he and his family in Tijuana, Mexico, he felt called to uh, just to open their home, be hospitable. Uh, they would walk out to the end of his driveway and there would be a baby laying there, often a result of sort of um, prostitution, different things in the area, and rather than being like, ooh, what do you do with that? Like, find their authorities, they'd pick him up, take him to their home, and raise him as their own. They would adopt them. Uh, I've been there a number of times at his house. Uh, there's always been like, I think it was around 19 boys that they had adopted at that point. I've got two boys in my house. I think it's chaos enough. And you see that smile on his face? I've never seen it wiped off before. Why? God's love to him. God's love in him, God's love through him. You want the same? Open yourself to God's love to you, God's love in you, God's love through you. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for people like Louise Salinas, who has a smile that's a mile wide because of you, because he's found and experienced the love of God in such a way that he wants his whole life to be about you and your ways. God, thank you for this text that tells us the reality of what you're calling us to be as your people. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you empower us to open our lives in this way, because even that's an act of God, that we would say yes to you. We thank you for that work in us. And we pray, Jesus, that um, if there's anyone here who's been living the life that's suffocated, living the life with themselves at the, at the center, maybe hasn't ever come to a place of fully putting their trust in you, Jesus, would you be at work in their heart right now? Holy Spirit, would you be just nudging them and, and, and drawing them to yourself? That's your work, God, and we just trust you with it. 
Maybe for that person, it's just praying a simple prayer like this today. Say, God, I I realize that I need you, that I've done life with me at the center, and that I need forgiveness because there is darkness in this heart. And I trust in the work of Jesus on the cross that he did for me what I could never do for myself, that he paid for my sins so I could come freely before God the Father and just experience your love. And God, I, I, I now I want to live with you at the center, not me anymore. Rescue me, save me, make me your child, and lead me for the rest of my life. God, I thank you that you answer that prayer.